come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode number 27 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And this is going to be episode number three of Journey Through the Aughts, where I have featured reviews of The Ape from 1940, as well as Covenant, which is getting its 2020 release. And then on this episode, I will also have mini reviews of The Quiet Ones, The Omen Remake from 2006, Zombieland Double Tap, and The Slayer. Now, what I'm going to do without further ado is send you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. Enjoy.
review it is going to be the quiet ones from 2014 this is directed by john pogu this comes from a screenplay by craig rosenberg orin moverman and pogu as well as being based on a screenplay by tom deville it stars jared harris sam claflin and olivia cook this is a horror mystery thriller from the united kingdom this is currently sitting on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a university professor and a team of students conduct an experiment on a young woman uncovering terrifyingly dark, unexpected forces in the process. Now, this one is one of the first ones that when Hammer came back as a studio, they made this film here. And... I actually got turned on to this one when I was at a family video and saw it on the new release shelf. I almost pulled the trigger, but for whatever reason, I did it. And I'm pretty sure it was probably my ex and I had already had two movies picked out for that weekend. So we just didn't have the time and I just never went back and thought about it. But I have been curious for some time to see what this is all about. As I have heard some podcasters talking about it and not everybody really just seemed to be that high on it. And I also found it interesting saying that this is a Hammer film. Is I've been kind of going back into some of their earlier stuff as that was somewhat of a blind spot for me. So it's kind of interesting to see, you know, something new that they have made. And kind of just going from the synopsis that I said, this is based on a true story very loosely. In the opening credits, we get to see some classic images of things like Kronos eating his children or popular images of the devil. And then we also have see some like older ritual type things. But the crux of this movie is an experiment is being performed on Jane Harper, who is Olivia Cook, who I'm a big fan of, if I'm going to be honest. But the man who is running this experiment is the professor Joseph Copeland, who is Jared Harris, who's another actor that I'm actually a big fan of. Now, what they're doing here is trying to prove that mental illness is something that can be isolated and removed similar to like that of a tumor. And so that's why they have Jane here. But what I find interesting here is that she is bounced around from foster family to foster family. And coming here to work with the professor, he is manipulating her to want to have these experiments done on her because she doesn't really feel love in the normal way because of everything that she's gone through. So I found that to be a little interesting dynamic that this movie gives to us. But then there's also, we get to see her playing off of this with Brian McNeil, who is Sam Claflin as 
he is somebody who is feeling real affection towards her, but she isn't because just kind of the feelings and how she's grown up, it's not the normal natural progression that people kind of go through. And this takes place in the 70s, which I found this is an interesting era to do this in, as it is at the height of the satanic panic type thing there. And there is definitely, I got the vibes of almost like a haunted house type film to start out with, but it goes much deeper than that, and I did find it to be pretty interesting there. The problem, though, was I found it to be boring. The, I thought the first act was really good in building up what we were getting to, so that had me hooked. The middle of it, though, in the second act just kind of really just bogged itself down, and I kind of waned in interest and didn't really care where things were going at that point. But then I thought the third act was good as they started to give us some reveals, and I almost feel like they could have incorporated some of that a little bit earlier. I did see that there was a lot of rewrites under the screenplay while they were filming, so I'm wondering if that's a big portion of it there, too, is that they would do something and it wouldn't work, or they would try and change their mind. It could have been budgetary reasons, so they just kept switching things. So I did find that to be interesting, that that could be part of what my issues were here. And really the only part of this as well, so I'm going to go back real quick, is the base on the true story is the experiment that they're trying to do here. Outside of that, this is all fictional because that other one took place in Toronto, not in the United Kingdom where this takes place. And then... Something I really wanted to talk about is, I've already said how I'm a fan of Cook and Harris. I thought they both are actors that I've been really kind of impressed with. I don't watch enough of what Jared Harris does, but everything that I have, I've been a fan. Same thing kind of goes for Cook, but I like to see her here is a more stronger woman where she's using her sexuality as a weapon towards Brian. And then the other thing I kind of wanted to bring up is the character of Chrissy, who is played by Aaron Richards. I think being placed in the 70s, I like to see her as a modern woman here where she's in a little bit of a love triangle with the other student that they're with, Harry, as well as Harris. But she is using this and actually calls out Harry for saying that he loves her, saying that that's a word that kind of ruins everything. I kind of like that aspect to be incorporated into the film there. But like I said, ultimately, this film does have some issues for me, especially with its boring. And I think what could have made this film stronger they waited too long to kind of reveal to us. So my rating here is actually going to be a 6.5 out of 10. I would still recommend it to horror fans. I do know it's kind of got some people that like it while others don't. But that's personally where I came in on this film at the moment. And for my second review, I watched The Omen Remake from 2006. This is directed by John Moore. It is written by David Seltzer. It stars Leif Scriber. Julia Stiles, and Seamus Davey Fitzpatrick. This is a horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being an American official realizes that his young son may literally be the devil incarnate. Now, I should start off this review stating that I saw this remake before I saw any of the original series. My mother took myself and my sister to see this in the theater, which would have been probably when I was visiting from college. It wasn't too long after that that I sought out the original series, as I did enjoy this the first time I saw it. And this would probably be the third time of me actually checking it out, but the first time I've actually done it with a critical eye. Now, this one is pretty much a shot-for-shot -shot remake of the original, so I'm not really going to delve into anything, as I've already done kind of a review for the original one there. And this definitely kind of falls into that thing where we had films like the Psycho remake from 1998 where they're not really doing anything necessarily new with it for the most part. And they're really just kind of updating it to a more modern time. 
which I do think that does work here as they're correlating things like 9-11 to be one of the reasons that of the impending apocalypse as this one does start with a observatory near the Vatican seeing a star that looks very similar to what the Bible described for when Jesus was born near Bethlehem. Now I do want to say that the deaths here are kind of influenced by Final Destination especially the first ambassador when he passes away and then with what happens with the reporter that teams up with Robert Thorne, who in this film is Scriber, and that is Keith Jennings, portrayed by David Thewlis in this movie. I do think that the Final Destination aspects are incorporating in, I mean, they're definitely influenced by it, and I just think that that does do some interesting little aspects there, which is something I did definitely like, but because it's a shot-for-shot remake, I do feel this version is lacking heart, and kind of just going through the motions, but really just lacking that. And I think part of that is also due to the fact that because this isn't as good as the original to me, I think that I really just kind of end up wanting to watch that original one while I'm trying to see this. And another thing that also hurts for me is that for the music, they don't incorporate the chorus style music that we got that's you know being sung in Latin. I just think that really helps to make this feel like a religious film. And since we don't get that, it really just is kind of taking the original story and just repackaging it in a more modern time. But something I will say is I do think the acting is still pretty good here. Now we do have Liv Scriber is not nearly as talented as Gregory Peck, but I don't mind the different and younger take that he has of Robert. So I do think he's good here. I'm not a big fan of Julia Stiles playing the wife Catherine though, as I just, at the time when I first saw this, I didn't feel like she was old enough to be a mother of this child that is at this age. So that's kind of where I'm still at here. I did say that I do like Pete Postulate, who plays Father Brennan, who tries to warn Robert about what is happening. We also have the great Mia Farrow, who's taking on the role of Mrs. Blaylock, which I think she does a better job in this version. We also have Michael Gambon, who plays Bugenhagen, the priest who is trying to tell Robert what he has to do here. Not a big fan, though, of Seamus Davy Fitzpatrick taking on the role of Damien. I just don't feel he comes off as creepy enough to take on this role of Damien, but I'll kind of digress there. Aside from that, the other thing is that this one goes, since it's going the more the Final Destination route, they use CGI. I just don't think that's really all that good and doesn't necessarily hold up for me as it just doesn't look as good. And some of the deaths that they're trying to incorporate back into this film from the original... I just don't think it looks nearly or doesn't work nearly as well when you're using CGI to do those things as it loses some of that realism for me. So with that said, though, that's really all I wanted to talk about this one here. I just think that it's very slightly over average. And I mean, I didn't hate it. It just I really struggled to pay attention to it. And the things that I thought were good just aren't good enough to really carry it. I would actually say this is probably more apt for people that are don't really like to watch movies pre 2000s. Or non-horror fans, I think this one will work well for you. But if you're a non-horror fan and you're kind of interested, I would actually recommend the original one over this. But I would come in here with a 5.5 out of 10. And that will take me next to Zombieland Double Tap. This is directed by Ruben Fleischer. This is co-written among Reet Reese, Paul Wiernick, and David Callahan. And it's also based on characters by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick. This is starring Woody Harrelson, Jesse Eisenberg, and Emma Stone. This is an action comedy horror film from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. 
with the synopsis being Columbus, Tallahassee, Wichita, and Little Rock move to the American heartland as they face off against evolved zombies, fellow survivors, and the growing pains of the snarky makeshift family. Now, I'll be honest, I really enjoyed the original one when it came out. It was a sweet spot for me at the end of college, especially because the main character of Jesse Eisenberg is pretty much going to the same college I went to at Ohio State. And this is also around the time that I was starting to enjoy horror comedies a bit more. And zombies is a subgenre that I have a lot of love for when it's done right. This film I remember being talked about almost immediately after the original, and it seemed to have been in development hell since then. And I do know there was a little bit of an ill-fated TV show that came out as well. I did find it weird and that, that it finally got made and release a decade after the original though. And then this is the second time I've viewed this as the first time I was in the Gateway Film Center checking it out, you know, on the big screen. And then the second time around, my girlfriend Jamie was interested in seeing it as she liked the original. And it was a pretty easy film for me to convince her to check out. Now, what I thought about this one is that it feels a lot like the original, just tweaking a few things here and there. I don't think the characters are all that much different. I mean, we have Tallahassee, you know, kind of being the macho guy where we have Columbus who's neurotic and just kind of awkward. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of see myself a lot of and a lot of what he does and says, especially because he's really hung up on kind of the knowledge and trivia that he has which is something I definitely would do Wichita is you know still interested in Columbus but we can see that she's kind of having the itch that she wants to get back on the road and she just struggles with pretty much trying to settle down and make like a normal life where Little Rock being that she was so young in the original one doesn't want to kind of have this type of family and she really just wants to have a boyfriend of her own and doesn't really like that Tallahassee is trying to take on that fatherly role for her and now for this one is that the two girls do end up leaving, and that causes Columbus and Tallahassee to try to figure out what they're going to do. And they end up running into a girl named Madison, portrayed by Zoe Dutch, at a mall. And then she ends up hooking up with Columbus, and then Little Rock runs off with a guy named Berkeley, who is Avon Hogia, who is a hippie, and this really infuriates Tallahassee, and they go off to head towards Graceland, where they're going, as well as to this place called Babylon, where some Gen Zers are trying to create their own community, which is kind of eye-rolling, to be honest. But this one, they also learn that the zombies are evolving, which I did think was a kind of cool idea to incorporate here. We do get some pretty good effects, if I'm going to be honest. I didn't even mind the CGI that we got here. The only time I really had any issues there would be the climax, but I do think the zombie makeup looks good. The only problem I have here is that we don't really get as many distinct zombies as we used to, as this one is more incorporating that there are some things called like homers that are very, you know, stupid, while we also have ones called like hawking that are able to think and kind of do things a little bit more smart for zombies. There's a ninja that are kind of sneaking around, but they also encounter one that are bigger, faster, stronger that are called the T-800s like from Terminator. I do think that this, like I said, the characters are pretty much very similar to what they were in the original. I thought Woody Harrelson was hilarious here. Again, I like Jesse Eisenberg just because I see a lot of myself in him. Emma Stone, I also like her sarcasm that she brings to the role. And I do like that they incorporated new characters here to kind of flesh out things a little bit differently. Because we also get a cameo from Rosario Dawson who portrays a character named Nevada. But my problem with this one, though, is I feel like it's a little, it's too little too late. I still enjoyed it. It did make me laugh, which is what I'm really kind of going for here. It's just not nearly as good, and I think they might have waited a little bit too long. So my rating here is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. And for my final mini review of this week, 
it is going to be the slayer from 1982 this is a horror mystery film that is from the united states it is directed by j.s cardone who also co-wrote this with bill ewing and it stars sarah kendall frederick flynn and carol cottonbrook this is currently sitting on a 5.3 on imdb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, two couples become stranded on a rugged island and are haunted by a supernatural beast drawn to the wife of one of the couples who dreams of its killings. Now, this is a movie that I never really heard about until I got into podcasts. I'm pretty sure I never saw this VHS cover in the video store. And I'm not entirely sure how I got turned on to this, but I'm pretty sure that the Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast did cover this one pretty recently. And I listened to their review, and things stuck with me as I was watching this that kind of popped up as I was going. But not enough to really spoil it, but that was just something that did help me form some opinions on what I was seeing as well. Now, I don't really want to delve too much more into the story than what I've already done, but this does have an interesting setup and premise where they're stranded on this island, so I do like where you have them isolated, especially for a film like this. And we get some ominous things where we get to see that the main character, Kay, who is portrayed by Kendall, has painted a building that they find on this island. And then we also have Marsh, who is portrayed by Michael Holmes. What is interesting here is that he's the pilot that flies them out to this island, which is... They have to get there by a single engine plane. And I like the fact that he tells them that the storm is rolling in and that he won't be able to come get them. So that makes it even more isolated, which this movie does kind of feel at times like a giallo film. And that's where I thought they were going to go. But this does become a slasher. And the big thing there is the kind of stranger characters. And I think they do really well in setting that up. The problem, though, is I feel like there's just lacking quite a bit to the story itself. I do like my films to be ambiguous so I can piece together things and kind of go from there. I just think this goes a little bit too much into that, and they don't explain enough for me to kind of draw my own correlations or parallels, so that is definitely something that I think they should have done a little bit better on, which is kind of interesting though, because as a slasher, this film has really good effects. I was really impressed with the blood and how everything looked with how it plays out. Another thing was the soundtrack, where Jamie had said, while she was just listening to this, while she was doing other things, that it was creeping her out. And I know for me, as I've said sometimes, I don't really necessarily know and listen to the music unless it stands out for something that's more of a classic. But this does have a soundtrack that really got my anxiety going, and I think it really fits perfectly for what they're going for with it. And then my friend on Facebook, Tim Walker, had brought up the fact that this does have an interesting dreamlike feel. And I think the setting kind of builds off of that. And I do agree with him that it is pretty creepy and things like that. And I would even say that the acting in this movie is above average, which you don't necessarily always get with a slasher film. So I'm definitely impressed on that front as well. I just think my problem is that I don't even necessarily know if the writers of this know where they're going for with it. We do get some interesting kind of reveals like that Kay has always been somewhat mentally disturbed and has had these vivid, horrible nightmares because when she was a little girl, she had a kitten that ended up dead and she blamed it on something that happens in her dreams. So I like the establishment there that, you know, maybe she's the one that is doing these killings. Now, I'm not going to go into spoilers or anything like that to kind of delve into some of the more finer, intricate aspects of it. But I do like introducing these things. I just feel you needed just slightly a bit more to satisfy me. Because I think if you would have done that, this could have been, I think, much higher for me. 
my problem is just that when you don't give me enough of it, I kind of just lose interest as I couldn't really necessarily know where it was going. And there's a lot of downtime for this type of movie. And it's very backloaded with all of the action as well, which also I feel hurts it in my opinion. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is give this a 6 out of 10. And those are all of the movies that I watched in the horror genre for this week. I do want to give a shout out that I did watch a movie called Oxymorons from one of the stars, Johnny Hickey, who also wrote and directed this, had asked me to give it a viewing, and I did. I couldn't necessarily say that it was horror, so I'm not going to do a full review here, but I did want to definitely shout him out on this episode before I ended it. But there are definitely some nightmarish things, and I think it's a brutal, realistic look at those who are in the drug business or get hooked on drugs. So I do have to give credit to that. I gave that movie a 7 out of 10, but that is all I wanted to delve into for these mini reviews today. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first feature review. got to catch him prowling after dark. Think he's still hanging around the village? He got masoned, didn't he? And we found new tracks up around Dr. Adrian's house. Maybe we men of science think different from other people, but uh, if they ever find out in the village what you've been doing... You mean about the animals? Yes, some of the dogs have been missed. Well, that phase of the experiment is all over. That ape seems to take a fancy to your place. Now, don't take offense, Doctor. I'm just trying to clear up my mind. Them dogs of mine have been sniffing ape for days. It's made them foolish, I guess. Else why this snarl at you? Hey, Doc. What are you going to do to me? I'm going to write you into medical history. Welcome back, and on this episode, the first featured review is The Ape from 1940. This is directed by William Nye. This is from a play written by Adam Shirt. It is adapted by Kurt Sadamak, who also co-wrote this with Richard Carroll. This stars Boris Karloff, Maris Rickson, and Gene O'Donnell. This is a horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.6 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Dr. Bernard Adrian is a kindly scientist who seeks to cure a young woman's polio. He needs human spinal fluid to complete the formula for his experimental serum. Meanwhile, a vicious circus ape has broken out of its cage and is terrorizing the townspeople. Can there be a connection? Now, this is a film that I think I'd heard about over on the ABCs of Hidden Horror with their sub-show, The Attack of the Colossal Collection. Now, I could be wrong about that, so if that's not where I heard about this, I do apologize there. But I did add it to my list of films that I wanted to check out at some point. Didn't have it very high on the list because I know they weren't very high on the movie themselves. So it was one of those type of situations. And it was from them that I also learned that this is an odd subgenre of ape-based horror films that were popular around this era, which is kind of odd to me, to be honest. But when this one came up on a list of films from 1940, I decided to check it out here for this episode of Journey Through the Aughts. 
Now we start this movie off with some boys that are trying to come up with enough money to go to the circus. They introduce us to Danny Foster, who is O'Donnell, as he runs the local gas station as well as garage. He sends them on their way as he doesn't have any odd jobs for them to do. They then take us to the house of the local doctor, who is Dr. Bernard Adrian, portrayed by Boris Karloff. They throw rocks at his place and are spooked off when he comes up from behind them. And I think he actually grabs one of them named Willie, who is played by Buddy Swan. He's not that bad of a guy, though, but we get to see that the townspeople don't really care for him. Now, he is trying to help Miss Frances Clifford, who is Rickson. She's wheelchair-bound, and the movie doesn't tell us, but as the synopsis stated, she's afflicted with polio, which, once I read that, it makes a whole lot of sense as to what they're doing here. This killed Dr. Adrian's wife and daughter, and it, he's made it his life mission to help Francis be able to walk again, and it almost seems like to come up with a cure for polio as well. The film then shows us that these children aren't the only ones who don't like Dr. Adrian. At the local shop, all of the men are bad-mouthing him, and it is only the shopkeeper who is defending him. Now, what I do like here, though, is the shopkeeper actually calls one of them out for... I feel like later in the movie we figure out that he has his own farm, but he is giving out loans to people with high interest rate. And when the shopkeeper calls him out on it, that guy changes the subject and doesn't really want to talk about it, which is really fitting when you're doing some, you know, shady things like that you don't want to be worried about. But they do kind of have a little bit of basis as to why they don't like Dr. Adrian is the fact that they fear that he's doing something weird because he's experimenting on animals. And he's also an outsider to the town. Now, the experimented on animals is where I think they have a little bit of a leg to stand on. But him being an outsider is not really his fault. And I grew up in a small town, so I definitely get where they're coming from. And that's one of the things that I hated about where I grew up. Now, after the night's performance at the circus, there's a trainer who is messing with the ape that is part of the show. And it ends up attacking him. It gets free, mauling that trainer to the extreme. The ape then escapes into the countryside and a fire breaks out as the trainer was smoking a cigarette and it fell into some hay. This ape then makes his way to Dr. Adrian. Now, the doctor does fight it off and only Jane, his housekeeper, portrayed by Gertrude Hoffman, knows that it was there. The trainer is then also brought to Dr. Adrian to see if he can possibly help him and prevent him from passing away. He can see that the wounds are too severe and decides that the only thing that he can really do is to use this man to help with his experiment in helping Francis walk again. Now, despite the ape being killed, or at least that's what it seems, there the creature seems to be roaming the area around this town still, which makes it quite interesting there. Now, that's where I want to leave my recap, as I don't really want to go into spoilers, as I'm thankful that I didn't read the synopsis that was listed on Amazon Prime where I watched this, as it definitely spoils the ending. I didn't put it together, and I'm not going to lie, I got a bit confused as to what was going on. There are some good aspects to the story, though, as well. Now, the first thing is, as I've already said, I grew up in a small town, but I also didn't start there. I transferred from a city elementary school to a country one when I was in fourth grade. Thankfully for me, I played soccer with two kids that were in my grade that also went to this school, so I didn't have a rough transition. I bring this up though because being the new kid tended to be popular there at first, but there were a lot who would put their nose up to outsiders. To correlate this back to the movie, I like that this is introduced here. We have Mr. Wilcox, who is cheating people in town with his high-interest loans, and when confronted, he acts like it's none of their business. He's against Dr. Adrian, though, who is out to actually do some good. Now, another man that we have in this town is Henry Mason, who is played by Philo 
McCullough. And I believe he's the one who's cheating on his wife. As we get to see at the circus that he is with a young girl there. And she's saying that everybody's looking at them. And he's not really worried about it. It does bother her, which I do give her some credit for having the wherewithal to see that what she's doing is wrong. But it still bothers me that he's cheating on his wife and that she is going along with it. But both of these things are definitely worse at this point, but are overlooked because, you know, they're holier than thou are. But I will say, I find it interesting that Dr. Adrian is a mad scientist, but he's trying to do good to start. We learn that later in the movie, he was kicked out of an institute for not using the best practices. We see that he's not really following the rules, but he does legitimately want to help Francis. This brings up the idea of, do the ends justify the means? And then you have to question your own morality to go with that. I do dig that aspect of the film. Now, what I also found interesting here is that, of course, we have a man in an ape costume from the beginning. They wouldn't be able to get the ape to do what they wanted in, you know, practically. What I find interesting, though, is how this plays out into the end. It almost like getting a peek behind the curtain. I'm not going to harp on the effects here due to the time period, but the ending was a bit corny and they needed to do a bit more to make it look like a person was really shot and they don't really do a good job there. But I'm not going to lie though, this movie really didn't hold my interest despite those aspects to the story. They left things a bit too vague and I didn't catch on to it. And I feel like I'm pretty observant so if that, I think there was just a few missing reels here and there. Which could have been the problem or they might have just not had them there at all. So for a movie that runs 62 minutes, where the version I watched on Amazon Prime is only 57, it was actually kind of boring to be honest. I really think that they lack the depth of characters is what really hurts. They don't really flesh anyone out, and I thought the acting was also a bit absurd, and that doesn't help me either. Now, since I already started talking about the acting, Karloff of course is a legend. This isn't his best performance though. I like that he really wants to help Francis, and I feel bad for him how the townspeople are treating him. He also has a dual nature where we have to question if we like him or not for what he's trying to do. I just feel that this is subpar with someone of the abilities that he has. Rickson was fine and her being in a wheelchair bound is interesting in developing her vulnerability. It really doesn't go anywhere though. And if anything, the best performance for me was Sheriff Jeff Halliday, who is Henry Hall. Everyone else was just fine, in my opinion. So with that said, this movie really just feels like it is missing some things. I like where the mad scientist Dr. Adrian is trying to do, and I really like making us question our morals of doing the right thing. Being that we have an ape who escapes and the reveal that they just doesn't feel satisfying. The characters are just lacking in depth, and it even with the low running time, I was bored. The soundtrack really didn't add much, but it also doesn't hurt the movie. Now, I'd rate this below average, unfortunately, and I didn't really care for it. I can't really recommend this to anyone, which is shocking when you have Cytomac and Karloff teaming up, because they would do some of the previous Universal films, but it is just lacking for me. But if you do want to see this, be warned it is from 1940 and is black and white. And then before I ended this, I did look up some trivia about this movie, which this is the final film in Karloff's six picture contract with Monogram Films, as this began filming on 729 of 1940. This film received its initial telecast in Chicago on Thursday, 17th of February, 1949. In New York City, it was June 17th of 1949. In Cincinnati, July 22nd of 49. And Los Angeles, February 27th of 1950. And the play that this is based on was opened in Los Angeles on 12:13 of 1927. Now, that's really all I 
wanted to go into here. There's not really enough story here for me to delve into really any spoilers. And that would make my rating be a 4 out of 10. So what I think I'm going to do is send you over to the trailer for my second featured review on this episode. In two days, the blood moon will rise again. He'll seek the blood of their bloodline. The Greeks called them soul eaters. They will kill you for sport and take your son. That's what demons do. He's coming. Your sacrifice will complete the awakening. If you lay one finger on my side, I will kill you, okay? There's no turning back. I wish I had a choice. I don't. My son is in there! Never have my son. All right, buddy, I'm here. Okay, just talk. Don't tell me! Help me! The reality you think you know is a lie. Help me! Help me! It's pretty obvious they're trying to kill me. Mother of God. And for my second featured review of this episode is going to be Covenant. Now this was made in 2018, but it looked like it might have been making the festival rounds or just had trouble getting distribution because it technically is a 2020 release. This is directed by Manuel H. Da Silva. It is co-written by Ken Cardwell and Jeff Carr. It stars Nick Smith, Peter Veldron, and Margarita Soldatova. This is a horror thriller from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb. And there's not enough ratings as of yet, but it looks like most of them are hovering right around the one and a half stars on Letterboxd currently. With the synopsis being, after receiving word of his estranged mother's untimely passing, a reluctant former army lieutenant must travel to a secluded town in the Pacific Northwest to unlock the mysteries surrounding her suspicious death. Now, this is a film that I checked out for a couple of reasons. The first was my goal is to watch 100 2020 horror movie releases so I can, you know, give my most informed list at year end as well as here for the podcast for, you know, to continue to do this journey through the aughts. Now, of course, I like to review, you know, at least one that is released this year. I came in here blind, having seen two films with similar titles in the past, and I found this one on a joint document that JP shot from over the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror put up on their site a few months back, so this was the next one down the list that I hadn't seen yet. Now we start here in the year 1984, and this is in the Pacific Northwest as the synopsis stated. We have Sarah, who is Paige Filardu, and her husband is part of a ritual. She changes her mind about wanting to participate and give her baby up, so she flees. A man pulls up to help her, and what he sees terrifies him, so he drives off with her. And then we actually see that back in the clearing, the husband is still there and agrees with her that they weren't going to give up their child. 
And that's when an entity named Nefirion, who is portrayed by Steve Kazan, arrives and kills this man. The movie then shifts to present day, where we have Ian Parker, portrayed by Smith, is returning to the town that he was born in. His mother has passed away and he needs to settle her affairs. Through a conversation on the phone, it is revealed that he is married and has a child named Clay, who much later on will get to actually meet him and he's portrayed by Simon D. Sissio. Now, Ian has messed up and the mother doesn't want him to see the child, but Ian fights back that she cannot do this. They decide they'll figure something out in allowing him to see his son. Ian then stops at a local coffee shop here in this town where he has a weird interaction with the woman that is working the counter and he's going to buy an orange juice and she's telling him that it's like six dollars and clearly it is an orange juice that you can buy in like a vending machine for less than two but he does try to comment that she's reading The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe and makes a stupid joke about that ill-fated film starring John Cusack from about 10 years ago. Now, as he tries to leave the parking lot, he meets Sheriff Malloy, who is portrayed by Peter Valdron. They have a less than pleasant interaction, and Ian isn't the nicest person. Now, the sheriff gives him his condolences and asks Ian to hang around while he investigates his mother's death. He then heads up to the cabin where his mother lived. Now, she left him a cassette tape that tells him why she did what she did and that there's a group of people that are after her as well as him. Ian really doesn't buy into this, and we get an odd scene where he stops to check the map. What is weird, though, is he's out in the middle of the woods where he stops, and according to what he's trying to say is that the directions he's been given is he has to walk straight through the woods to get to the cabin. Now, he doesn't end up doing this, but I don't really understand why this was there, outside of the fact that he notices a jogger girl who is Jessica Chin King, now, he had an odd interaction with her at the coffee shop, and she doesn't answer him out here in the woods while he's calling out, but then she does scare him when he gets back into his car and then disappears, so he's questioning if he actually saw her or if it's the medication that he has taken as he does suffer from PTSD from his time in the military. And as I was saying, though, I feel like this scene's here only so we can get this cheap jump scare, unfortunately. Now, there are some weird forces at play and things that are happening around Ian. We see that there's these specters of these two little girls that keeps haunting him as well as the cabin that he's in. Ian is supposed to meet with this man named Malcolm, but he's nowhere to be found. Sheriff Malloy checks on him periodically, which does aggravate Ian a bit. And then his world gets turned upside down when he meets Jade, who is portrayed by Solotova who she claims that she's been trained in Rome by the Pope and his guards to fight demons. She tells him that what they have to do, and if he wants to, you know, save his life as well as his son's, Ian isn't really buying it, but when they're attacked and shot at, he has no other choice but to follow what she says. Now, as this movie is going on, that's where I'm going to end the recap, and I was thinking that at first, this is just a pretty low budget, but I don't like, you know, just to trash movies like that. The other thing is that I love films that involve cults, so that aspect was working for it in my favor, and I also like when they're dealing with the occult as well. To be honest though, this film does go pretty in-depth with the mythology that they created for the screenplay. Now, I'm actually going to give a lot of credit there. It's as if they really cared what they were doing and really put the effort in to flesh things out. We have things like the Six, who are trying to bring about this demonic entity of Nefarion to life and give him a body here on Earth. There's also something that is trying to derail them called the Temptress. And that aspect of this really did intrigue me as well. The problem that I run into with this movie is that it's actually kind of boring, unfortunately. This is for a variety of reasons that I think. Part of it is the fact that we're following Ian and Jade as they walk through the woods for the most part. 
I kept kind of laughing to myself as this almost feels like the joke they make in Clerks 2 about Lord of the Rings as they're literally just walking. Now they do encounter things, but it is widely inconsistent with how they deal with the entities that they run into. One minute they say that if you do this, then this other thing cannot happen, but then that other thing does happen. They set up rules and they don't follow them. These plot holes take me out of it, and I'm sure that they're using the setting as it was a cheap way, you know, being out in the middle of the woods where somebody probably that they knew owned them and they could film out there without any issues. It just doesn't hold my interest with the setting that they're using. Now, being out in the woods can be creepy. They're just not really playing that up enough for me. As this does become problematic as we also have a low running time, which I normally like. And I have to say, the ending of this movie really worked for me as it does go pretty mean-spirited. Another issue is what I'll cover next, which is the acting. Now, having time to reflect before writing this and then, you know, recording this audio here, I came up with that Smith plays an insufferable character. Now, I picked that up when I was watching it. I couldn't stand him and couldn't connect. I don't think his performance is bad, though, so that becomes problematic for me. With how it ends with his character, it makes sense why he's the person that he is. Since we're following him, though, I didn't really care for what happens to him, as he just comes off as a dick to everybody, and I got to the point pretty early on where I'm like, I kind of just hope this guy dies, which is tough when that's your main character. I do think you need to make them a little bit more deep, where you have a bit of a duality where we can see both sides of it. I don't think we ever really get to see a good side of him. I am assuming they're trying to do the stuff with the sun to build that up, but I don't think that really is enough there for that to happen. Veldron was fine in his role. He just doesn't really add much, if I'm going to be honest. Sotolatova was quite attractive, and I enjoyed seeing her. She was fine in her performance, and I would also say that we get to see the Temptress topless, but that's about the extent with her. I did think they did some good makeup effects with her, which I'll delve into a little bit more here in a minute but i did think that was fine and i'd say that the rest of the cast was just mediocre though aside from that it just feels like many of these people had very little experience without a strong enough script to help them which will then take me to the effects of the movie as i was saying they rely mostly on cgi and i'm assuming this was budgetary reasons the problem though is that a majority of it that was used was bad so much where it took me out of the movie and i was laughing to myself not all of it falls into this as there were times where they use it subtly with just using certain things for enhancement which work great. We get Nefarion appearing places, magic being used and gunshots in their wounds. Really the only thing that was fine would be Nefarian for the most part. This is all bad looking though aside from that if I'm going to be honest again. The gun flash is looking fake. I could actually tell that the gun that Ian is carrying was fake as well. And that's just an issue if I can notice that, and sometimes I'm usually forgiving of it, but it just doesn't work here for me. But I will say, a bright spot with the practical effects was the look, as I said, of Nefarion, and there did some things with a Temptress that also looked good for me, and I will give credit to both of those things as well. Now, with that said, this movie was a bit of a letdown for me, as it had me hooked with its initial concept. The problem, though, is that there are just some inconsistencies with the rules that they're trying to establish. Due to this, I lost interest, and it is a shame with how this ends, though, because I did it really enjoy that. The soundtrack of the movie fit for what was needed, nothing special there. The acting really didn't help much and the script isn't really there to help them unfortunately. And I have to say this is a below average movie for me. A few tweaks here or there and it could have put it above that average line for me. With how it is though it just isn't there. And I had to come in here with a 4.5 out of 10. Now that's all I really want to talk about here. They really don't have enough for me to delve into much like the ape with you know 
kind of an in-depth breakdown of it. So I think what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to the last musical break before I close out the show. I'm 
I want to welcome you back one last time, and thank you for listening to Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast, episode number 27. To just close out the show, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Reviews of the Dead is where you can read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the previous reviews that I have written, and that is going to be at horrorreview.webnode.com. If you want to add me on Facebook, you can, and my name over there is David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. If you want to follow me on Letterboxd to kind of keep up with any of those reviews or any of my ratings, it'll be David OSU. On Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And I do think I'm going to try one last time here to get this flick chat thing going. I know I had somebody post on there earlier today while I was compiling this episode, but I think I'm going to start over there to show you what I'm watching currently and then try to see if i can spark up some more conversation as well when it comes to any of the films that i am watching now that is an app that you can download on your phone and if you would like to follow me on there my join code is journey with a cinephile all one word and the other thing i would ask if you could subscribe to my show on whatever podcatching app you are listening to this on Just so that way, anytime I drop an episode, you won't miss it. And if you are able to rate or review on that, I would also ask that way, just so like I said, if you can help me kind of make this show better in any way, shape, or form, I would greatly appreciate that. Aside from that, I do believe the next episode that I'm going to do is going to be another Journey Through the Aughts episode. I have a list of all of the 1940s horror films. Not sure which one I will watch next. I have to kind of see where the other ones are available to kind of check out type thing. But I will have one of those on there as well as I will watch another 2020 horror release as well. But just to kind of close this out, I hope with whatever you are doing today, you have a great time doing it and stay safe out there as at the time of recording this, this pandemic is still going on. Hopefully... If anybody's listening to this and it has come to an end, you can kind of disregard that. But that is what is currently going on, you know, at this time. But once again, I want to thank you for listening. This is David Garrett Jr. signing off.